Would you please pray with me? Oh, Lord, we thank you for this time of year where we can step back and look at our lives and see your amazing love for us in Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us, and we just pray that as we look at this great text from the Psalms every Sunday throughout this season of Lent, that you would move us into a greater relationship with you and with one another, and that we would walk out of this season knowing you, following you with greater profundity than ever before. Take our minds now, think through them, take my lips, speak through them, take our wills and bend them to yours, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, welcome to Lent 2017, my friends. Uh, you know, it's, we're, we're putting some of the new prayer book in here, you'll see it especially in a little bit. Um, and so it's a little longer service today because we don't want to miss the depth of what we're doing as we walk into the Lenten season. Lent in Old English literally means to lengthen. Our days are getting longer. Thanks be to God, right? You woke up this morning and it wasn't dark. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, but it more importantly reminds us that Easter is on its way. The celebration of the the resurrection, and so the church set these 40 days aside, not including Sundays, because Sunday's always a celebration, but, you know, we take a season where we examine ourselves, we look at our lives and our walk with Christ, where are we struggling, where are you struggling, what do you, how's your prayer life, how's your Bible reading, how's your service, how's your acts of mercy, whatever it might be, in discipline, and we pour those disciplines in our lives, and we withhold something for the purpose of just disciplining ourselves. It, it needs to go beyond the chocolate chip cookies. It needs to go beyond the fish on Fridays. No, no you know, offense meant to my Roman Catholic friends. It's, it's really, it's so much more deep than that. And so having said that, we do have some tools to help you. you know, we have a devotional, which we're selling for five bucks. It's called A Journey Through Lent. It stays along the themes of the sermon series that we're doing here during Lent. It's $5. We only have a couple copies left. Along with that, um, there's a $10 study guide if you want to go deeper for your own personal study. Uh, this is a series that was developed by Redeemer Presbyterian and Tim Keller and the team there, pastoral team. And they published it a couple years ago, and Becca kept telling me how great it was. And so we thought we'd pull it out, but, you know, I'd preach my own stuff rather than pull the screen down and let Tim preach it for you. I figured I'd give a crack at it, because I've never preached through the Psalms before. It's because the Psalms are just phenomenal, and, and they're, the, they're the Bible's hymnal, if you will. And so, to assist us through these next five weeks, we're going to look at the Psalms. And so let me, let me tell you why, in practical terms, when you really screw up, when you know you failed, and you know it's your fault, how do you get up again after you've fallen in such a way that you have more joy and power than before? How do you get up not broken and crippled and actually in worse shape than before, but better? How do you do that? That's what this season's all about. And that's what Psalm 32 is about. So I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Psalm 32, or you can just use the, the bulletin. It's right smack in the middle. We just played it together. Jerry led us in it where the theme was, be glad you righteous and rejoice in the Lord. And what we're going to learn in this psalm today, which is one of the penitential psalms of the Bible, 
We're going to learn the need for confession, the way of confession, and the secret basis of confession. The, the need for confession, the way of confession, and the secret basis of confession. I say secret only because we miss it all the time. I did until I looked at it this week. I go, oh my gosh, I've missed that my entire life. The Bible does that to us, right? You know, you see something, you come back to it years later, and something new. So that's why I'm calling it the secret, because most of us miss it. I know I did. And so first, let's look at the need for confession. Verses 1. We can't ignore this. It's too easy to run past into the middle of this psalm and ignore the first part. Verse 1 and 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose son is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And talking about the need for confession, it's vital for us to understand that the word that we use, blessed all the time, isn't the same thinking that we have in the English because the Greek and the Hebrew are so much more profound. In the English rendering of the word blesses, it means lifted up, inspired. You know, our, our, our status is good, you know, whatever it might be. We're greatly blessed. But blessed in the Hebrew and the Greek means a complete wellness of being, a profound fulfillment. And, and we say this word all the time, you know, God bless you. God bless you. But do we mean that when we think about it? And I want us to notice first, who is the one who's blessed? It's the one who is forgiven. So what David is saying is that the most fulfilled life in the world, the most belongs to people who have been deeply forgiven. Jesus talks about this, and it's so counterintuitive to our Western way of thinking. Jesus says this in Luke 7, to Simon, the religious leader, who is a little taken aback when this unseemly woman is washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying the feet with her hair. And Jesus looks at Simon, the leader, and says, Simon, can I tell you why she gets it and you don't? Can I tell you why she's more compassionate for people, more passionate in their faith, loving more than you? He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. And so what David is saying here is the happiest, most blessed, most fulfilled people are the people who have been most forgiven. And the Bible describes three kinds of people. There are those who feel they're too good to be deeply forgiven. There are those who feel they're too bad to be deeply forgiven. Then there are those who feel that they, they know they have a need to be forgiven, and they have been forgiven. So blessed is the one, says David, the happiest people on the face of the planet are the ones who not only know they need to be deeply forgiven, but are. In verse 1, the word transgression, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That's the, the Hebrew word pasha, translated transgression. It means, and you want to write this down, Rebellious self-assertion. Okay? It's rebellious self-assertion. It's when your mom cooked your cookies and chocolate chip cookies and laid them on the wax paper to cool. And she goes and she tells you, don't eat those cookies. All right? 
And she goes out of the room downstairs to do the laundry, and what did you do? You snuck a cookie. You know, if you didn't, you're lying to me. And you remember what it's like. You did it with your kids. You come down and said, didn't I tell you? Did you eat those cookies? No, they got chocolate all over their face. You know, they're guilty as can be. That's Peshaw. That is, they did it because you told them not to. Right? That's the spirit that says nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's Peshaw. Blessed is the man whose rebellious self-assertion is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. That word sin is a, is a supplemental understanding to rebellious self-assertion. It's the Hebrew word hata. It means to go off the path. You know? The path is where it gets you to your destination. It gets you to where you want to go. You have to go off the path. You know, I've been a hiker. It's never fun in, the, in certain national forests or parks to get off the path, right? Those of you who've been in such, you know what I'm talking about. You're in the middle of nowhere. But you also know it's a little fun to go off the trail, isn't it? You know, all my, my rednecks in Virginia, they love to four-wheel, you know? They go out in the country, and they make a hobby of getting off the path because it's so much fun, and we do it too. We all do it, and we think that that's the fulfilling life. And Bishop J.C. Ryle, writing in the mid-1800s, gives us a great statement about Hattah. What do such expressions as fast living, wild living, unsteady living, thoughtless living, loose living mean? They show that men try to cheat themselves into belief that sin is not quite so sinful as God says it is, and they are not so bad as they really are. You may see it in the tendency even of believers to indulge their children to questionable practices and to blind their own eyes to the inevitable result of the love of money, of tampering with temptation, and sanctioning a low standard of family discipleship and worship. I fear we do not sufficiently realize the extreme subtlety of our soul's disease. We are way too apt to forget the temptation to sin will rarely present itself in its true colors, saying, I am your deadly enemy. I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. Sin rarely feels like sin at its beginnings, says Ryle. Let us then watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. We may give wickedness smooth names, but we cannot alter its nature and character in the sight of God. Let us remember St. Paul's words in Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he closes, it's a wise prayer in our great litany in the prayer book. Quote, from impurity and thought, word and deed, and from all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. Wow, that, that could have been written in 2017. Really, right? That's what's great about reading Ryle. Um, it, it shows our need for confession. And I know some of you are thinking, Gene, you're just putting another guilt trip on us. You know? You know, that, that's for your generation. I'm 55. I'm old now. I get it, all right? Um, we, we, you know, some people would say, well, all this guilt and confession, you're just laying a guilt trip on me. Don't judge. You know, you come to us here in the suburbs of Cleveland, you tell us how to live to get rid of our guilt. Well, everybody I know is doing it. 
Guilt for us is not a problem as it was in earlier generations. Why? Because in traditional societies and old ways, more traditional cultures, morality was placed on people. Now you have to live up. Your role is given to you. And you said, now this is where you have to fit in. This is how you have to live up to. And of course, societies like that are filled with guilt. People who aren't living up to this or that, but the day is different. Everybody chooses the identity they want. You're the one who decides what's right or wrong for you. We're going to have the same problem. We're not going to have the same problems with guilt. I don't think it's that simple. Jean-Paul Sartre, well, before I get there, Notice verse 1 says, not only blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, but also whose sin is covered. Uh, He's writing about our Genesis reading that was read by Jerry earlier. You know, when Adam and Eve committed the first act of treason against God, and they walked away naked and ashamed, and they covered themselves. So what David is saying is, We have a deep need from the very beginning for a covering. We need to be covered in all cultures. And it's endemic to all generations, to all cultures, and to everywhere. When I was in college, I studied uh, in philosophy class the the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre. Rebecca wants a a French bulldog and name him Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, You know... Just Google it sometime. French Bulldog. You'll see what I mean. They all look like Jean-Paul Sartre. If you ever saw a picture of him, you know? He wasn't a nice person, but he was a brilliant thinker. I don't agree with him. But he has a famous illustration in the book that he wrote called Being and Nothingness, which I was forced to read. It's like drinking sand. All right? He says, imagine yourself in a room, and you see a keyhole. And you see light through the keyhole. When you get down and look through the keyhole, you see people doing things, and they don't know you're watching. Wow, you think, this is more empowering and satisfying to be the unviewed viewer. To be able to see everything, and they don't know you're watching them. You can see them, they can't see you. You're in the driver's seat. Suddenly, in Sartre's illustration, he looks behind him, and he sees an eye through the keyhole looking in. realize your unviewed viewing is being viewed. You are now the object, not the subject. You're dehumanized. And it's unbearable. Why? What Sartre is saying is there's nothing more dehumanizing than to be out of control with what people see of you. We need to control it. We need people to see us how we want them to see us. For someone to have access to us to be uncovered, for someone to have complete access to what you're thinking, how you're living, without you knowing of it or being in control of it, is utterly dehumanizing. We can't bear it because we're uncovered. And Sartre is an existentialist. He doesn't have any moral absolutes. Just look at his life. He doesn't believe we're supposed to live up to somebody else's standards for it, yet he says it's absolutely endemic every human being to desperately want to be covered. We don't want people to see how we are, who we are, how we think. What Sartre is saying is if anybody has that kind of access to us, they'll see things 
we will think things of which we are deeply ashamed and we cannot bear to have other people looking at us. To look inside of us, to catch us. So therefore, friends, it's, it's stupid, frankly, to say, well, you old-fashioned people have to deal with all your guilt. We don't. Because such people don't even live up to their own standards. And what Sard is pointing out here is we don't live up to our own standards either. Sure, here, here's traditional si society saying, and they say there's meaning to life and living according to certain standards. And here's our modern Western society saying the meaning of life is for you to work out your own standards. But they don't work out their own standards for themselves either. You're never the person you aspire to be. You're never the person you want to be. You're never the person you claim to be. Never. So that means everybody has a problem with guilt and shame. And it doesn't matter who you are, what century you're in, or what your culture is. So now we see why this is such an enormous promise. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Because we run on the treadmill of suburban expectations. We run on the treadmill of what it means to be successful. We run on the treadmill of the world telling us how we should raise our kids and what activities they should be in. 500 of them. We, on the treadmill of the perfect body, because we want to be successful. And we cover and we hide. And it's a way of trying to cover yourself and deal with the fact that deep down all of us know that there's something wrong with us. And it doesn't matter what culture you're in, it doesn't matter what century you're in, it doesn't matter where you are. Blessed is the one whom God has covered. That's why we need to be forgiven and to have God cover us. To be accepted by him. That would be blessedness. Okay? So let's keep going. The way of confession. There are just a few aspects of this confession that I think are worth bearing on. The first is, as we go into confession, I've thought about it a lot this week. You know, I've talked about walking through prayer and walking through confession before. I'm going to do this a little differently this morning. First, I want to look at how you can get this blessedness and what inhibits that blessedness in confession. The first thing you need to understand is you have to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. Verse 5. In Psalm 51, verse 4, David says, the same author says, Against you, you only have I sinned. Well, if you know any of the history of Psalm 51, which is immediately written after he got caught in adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So he's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder. He writes this psalm, and then he says, Against you, you only have I sinned, Lord? Seems like he's a murderer and adulterer to me. But the reality is David has found a way to judge between true guilt and false guilt, which is the mind of God, the heart of God, and the will of God disclosed in the Scripture. It's unreasonable for anybody to insist on one hand that all guilt is true guilt. We all know people who get unnecessarily guilty over every little thing, right? And there's some guilt you need to try to resist, you need to try to get rid of, but yet you struggle, and, but you say to yourself, I'm not going to try to give in to it. But it's just as unreasonable to insist that all guilt is false guilt. You know, 
in our culture, there are people who are always saying, well, now look, basically everyone has the right or wrong to decide what is right or wrong. There really are no true guilt feelings because everybody has to decide what's right or wrong for you. Would you say that to Hitler? You know, Hitler, Adolf, you know, the guy who felt that the way he led Germany in the 1930s was the right thing to do. And a thousand years from now, he felt like if this would expand around the world, the world would be a better place. Maybe he sincerely believed that. Maybe he had a few guilt feelings. Well, if he did have guilt feelings, he should have listened to them. He should have had felt those guilt feelings. In other words, everybody knows there are some guilt feelings that are true. Everyone knows some guilt feelings that are right. And other guilt feelings are wrong. So how do you tell the difference? What I cannot figure out is how anybody can get through life without some kind of measuring stick, without some kind of straight edge. There has to be a standard by which if I bring my guilt feelings to the straight edge and I see there's nothing in there that says it's wrong, I kick it to the curb. I'm all right. I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what my culture says. I don't care what my friends say. I'm not guilty because the straight edge says I'm not guilty. But if I bring my guilt feeling to the straight edge and it says I'm guilty, I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what my culture says. I am guilty. And i got to go to the straight edge to help me with that. So a lot of people who say, well, you have to make up your own mind and your own heart and what's right or wrong for you, I ask them, what are you going to do when your conscience is killing you then? What if you really are following Jiminy Cricket, who says, let your conscience be your guide? You know, there's a lot of people in mental institutions who have lived their lives that way. You see, when your straight edge is the word of God, the Bible, there's that answer for that. First John says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. Okay? You have to have a straight edge. And David has it. He says, I acknowledge my sin as to you. I don't look to any other standard. So the first thing you have to do in confession is have the intellectual discernment to go to the scripture. And this is not a simple pat answer, friends. And we need to do this in community. We need to do it with other people, with other pastors, with other scholars, and with one another. And it's not an easy thing to do, but that's the first thing we have to do. We go to the scripture to first discover, uh, is this true guilt or false guilt? Secondly, we need to distinguish between grief and self-pity. I cannot tell you how many people think they've confessed and confess, and they never, ever, ever change. They've repented, and they've repented, and there's no freedom. They say, I feel so bad about my sin. Well, there's a difference between grief, which is real confession and self-pity. What do I mean? Look at the end of verse 5 and it says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't that kind of redundant? Isn't iniquity sin? Isn't sin iniquity? Isn't transgression sin? What is he saying? It says, I confess the sinness of my sin. No, it's an important point. Here's why. If you look down a little further, Verses 8 and 9. After the confession over and successful, David senses to God saying something to him, and God says to him, verses 8 and 9, God is speaking, I will instruct you and teach you, David, in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
that doesn't mean he's just looking at him. That means he wants to have him relationally with him, eye to eye, face to face. I want to guide you personally, David. Verses 9, I don't want you to be like a horse or a mule, David. It's a relationship. Think about this. If you have a horse or a mule, they're moving along. They see some oats over in the field over here. What do they do? They want to go to the oats. What do you do? Kick them, pull them back a little bit. They get back on the, the trail. We do it again. We kick them and pull them back on the trail. Comes to the third time, that mule wants to go back out into the field to eat the oats. You really pull on the bit and you kick him again. You know what? Finally, he's, he's on the trail, and that's good. And you think the horse is thinking to himself, well, I got the picture. I won't go left anymore, but after a while, what does he do? Goes back on the left. He's sorry for the kick. He's sorry for the kick for his sin. He's sorry for the consequences. But he's a horse. He doesn't understand the heart of the master. See, he's changed, but it's not that he sees the sinness of his sin here. The grievousness of the sin. He only sees the consequences of the sin. He changes out of self-pity, not out of grief, which is true repentance. And it won't be long before he's going to start to go left again because his memory starts to fade. You've seen it over and over in, in, in relationships and in counseling situations. I've seen it. A person was constantly confessing it whenever they looked like it was going to get them in trouble, but yet they never changed. And as a result, they really weren't confessing. They really weren't repenting. He was repenting, but he wasn't. He was wallowing in self-pity. So the first thing to do is recognize the difference between true guilt and false guilt. The second thing to do in the way of confession is to recognize the difference between grief and self-pity. And third, you have to change your perspective. What this means is as much as you possibly can, and it's an act of radical imagination, you have to put yourselves in the, sh in the shoes of the person you've wronged. You have to say, well, ultimately if we've wronged God, how do I do that with God? It's not impossible. You have to say to yourself, and you have to say to the Lord, Oh Lord, I can hardly imagine what it's like to create somebody and then sustain them every minute of their lives, every beat of their heart pumping, all the lungs in their air, air in their lungs breathing. I can hardly imagine what it's like to give everything to somebody and to be ignored day in and day out, day in and day out. To have broken promises over and over and over again. I can hardly imagine, but I'm trying truly sorry. Forgive me. See, that's stepping and changing your perspective. And it works for other people, too, that we've sinned against. And what that does is that begins to heal that relationship, too. Look at verse 5. And I did not cover my iniquity. No hiding. <laughs> Full disclosure. Being honest. Taking responsibility without excuses. Real repentance and confession starts when the blame shifting ends, and it starts when self-centeredness and self-pity ends. So do you wonder why so many people seem like they're crying and confessing and they're so sorry, and sometimes in the minutes or hours or weeks there's really no difference? 
haven't incorporated any of that. They haven't grown. There's no relief. There's no blessedness. And it's because they're not doing it like this. There's a certain skill of competencies that comes as you grow in Christ, ladies and gentlemen. But there's really one last point that has to be made. There's a secret to confession. What's the basis for this confession? How can God forgive us when we confess. I want us to look at this amazing statement. Again, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It happened. It's, it's in the present tense. It's immediate. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How can God do that? If you go back up to verse 1, there's a little trick. I know it's not a trick, but I just kind of notice it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's the one who God counts no iniquity, whose sin is covered. Blessed is, in verse 2, blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. There it is. It's an amazing statement. God forgives us because he doesn't count what we've done against him. It would be like this. You go to a teacher, you take a test, you get a D on the test. Awful. You're below average, you know. Professor comes in the next day and says, you know what, I'm not going to count that against your final grade. Um, The next test, the next paper, and all the tests and all the papers in the future will not count against your final grade. That's the gospel. That's salvation. That's exactly what David is talking about here. Because when I confess my sin and God forgives my sin, he covers us because he doesn't count it against us. See, our sin, your sin, my sin, has nothing to do with our final grade. There's a hint in verse 7. Here's the secret. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Look at this. Do you know what's so interesting here? Everybody knows they need to be covered, and David has some sense God himself was going to be the covering. There is some way in which I can hide myself in God. That's odd. How can you hide in God when your big problem is you need to hide from the God because of your sin? How can you hide from God in God? Do you know why crucifixion is so horrible? Do you know why crucifixion was the worst kind of execution? Because you were stripped naked, your arms were tied and nailed to the cross, so you couldn't even try to preserve your modesty. It was the ultimate keyhole. You didn't die quickly. You died slowly and excruciatingly and publicly. What that meant, you were utterly naked, utterly exposed. You died literally of exposure. People walked by and they mocked. Ultimate keyhole, ultimate dehumanization. Why did Jesus do it? Paul 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him to, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which means God counted Jesus as a sinner, so he doesn't have to count us as sinners. He gave Jesus the status he didn't deserve, so we, he could give us status that we don't deserve. And what that means is when you say, Father, accept me because what Jesus has done, you have been forgiven completely and permanently. Your sins are not counted against you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand the basis of your forgiveness, you're going to try to turn your confession into an act of work. The way you confess alone is, is going to try to warrant God's mercy. Because when we truly confess, we need to be not just merely to be forgiven, but to be restored to the relationship. George Whitfield once said, my repentance needs to be repented of. I cannot repent except I sin. Well, what does that mean? You know what he means? He's saying, I need to be forgiven of sin A, but my sin B is the repentance itself because my motives were never pure. I'm never completely free of my self-pity. I'm never completely able to change perspectives. And you say, well, then why confess? My goodness. If you're already forgiven, why do that? Well, the answer is to get back to that relationship with the living God. He wants a relationship with us now. To get back to that intimacy, eye to eye. No longer a horse or a mule, but a friend. Living because I love him, because he loves me, because of what he's done for me. When you have that, and only when you have that, you can cry, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So be glad, you righteous. Rejoice in the Lord. You have true relationship, true confession, true covering. So I ask you in closing today, what's the recurring sin in your life? What's the root of it? And how can you begin to cut that sin out at the root? Take that this Lent. And let's Focus on pouring a discipline into our life that will help us grow whatever is a barrier for us. Uh, we, we, we can say as a community, we really stink at evangelism. We do. When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody? Really? When's the last time you even tried to gossip the gospel? We're working on that in the journey groups and our smaller groups. We're saying, how can we gossip the gospel? Um, so we're going to be talking about that, how we can do a better job with that intentionally, because that's what's going to take, because they're not coming in here, we've got to go to them. So we're going to be working on that, not only in the journey groups and our small groups, but it starts with me and the vestry and the, the equipping team and the deacon ministry team. But we're doing it all together. So, so, so take that before the Lord. Lord, how can I shine your light and be a salt to the earth this week? reality is we're trusting in Jesus alone with true confession, true relationship, and true covering. So be glad, you righteous. And let's walk forward from here this morning rejoicing in the Lord.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for showing us how we can have such blessedness. A fulfillment that comes from knowing that we are permanently forgiven in your son Jesus and therefore we're covered. And we don't have to cover ourselves. Lord, I pray you would make us into such a people in an increasing manner. Trusting, confessing, covered, and laboring in your vineyard. In your harvest. Lord, I pray you'd make us a people just like that. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.